As I mentioned this morning, I want to speak this evening on the subject of taking. And we've heard a lot of sermons on giving, but I don't suppose I've ever heard one on taking. But there's quite a bit that's given in the Bible concerning taking. I want to begin this evening by reading a passage from the fourth division of the book of Proverbs, and we'll notice several places in the Bible that it mentions some things that we as God's children ought to take. And if we'll do this taking, the time will come when we face God on the day of judgment and we'll stand as a child of God. We'll grow in our strength as his children if we'll take some of the things that I mentioned this evening in the lesson. In Proverbs 4, beginning of verse 13, the Bible says, Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her. She is thy life. Enter not into the path of the wicked, nor go into the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass by it, turn from it, pass it away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief. And their sleep is taken away, lest they shall cause some to fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness, and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more under the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness, and they know not at what they stumble. My son, attend unto my words, and incline my ear unto my sake. Let not them depart from thine eyes, keep them in the midst of thy heart. For they are life unto all those that find them, and health unto all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Put away from thee a forward mouth and perverse lips far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on and thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet and let thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand and to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. This passage teaches us that we as the children of God ought to take hold of instruction. You know, sometimes when we study our Bibles and when we study lessons together, it's easy to allow the words of a lesson to pass us by. It's easy sometimes for us to look around and begin to apply the words that we read in our Bibles to others and say that these apply to others, but yet they do not apply to me. And this passage says that he instructs his son to take hold or take heed to instruction. He instructs his son that he needs to attend to the words, to incline thine ear unto the things. He said, let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thy heart, for they are life unto those that find them and health unto all their flesh. If we're really going to enjoy life, if we're really going to be happy, as we come down to the end of a year and begin preparation for another year, we need to think about the fact that God's Word ought to guide our lives. And we need to listen carefully to it as we study it. Our Lord in Luke 8 verse 18 said, Take heed how you hear. And he's trying to tell us that we need to be careful that we listen with an open heart to receive God's Word into our heart, to allow it to find a dwelling place there, to allow it to become a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway 
Psalms 119, verse 110. Notice what Solomon says here. Let not thine eyes look to the right, and let not thine eye, or let thine eyelids look straight. And we need to allow God's Word to set a straight path, a straight course that we might follow that and allow the Word of God to direct our lives. We need to take God's Word. We need to take that as instruction for us to live, for a pathway of life. We need to be careful that we always, no matter what we read and find in our Bibles, that we take that and apply that to us. James 1 and verse 21, James said, Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. God's word ought to be the very lamp of our lives. It ought to guide our lives and guide our pathway. And so Solomon says that we need to take hold of instruction. In the second place, we need to take hold or take heed and be careful that we do not live righteous lives simply to be seen of men. If you'll turn to the sixth division of the book of Matthew, beginning with verse 1, our Lord says, Take heed that you do not do your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound the trumpet before thee, as do the hypocrites in the synagogues and in the streets. For... They, or that they that may have the glory of men, verily I say to you, they have their reward. When thou doest alms, let not thy right hand know what, or left hand know what the right hand doeth. That thy alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. And then he talks about a man praying, and he says that this man is not to pray in the street simply for the recognition of men. Our prayer ought to be that, that we pray to God, to be heard of God, not of men. He's saying that we need to be careful that our righteousness is not simply lived to bring praise from men. We mentioned in the adult class, Brother Bobby Crow mentioned this morning, the fact that Ananias and Sapphira were seeking righteousness to be praised of others. They had seen Barnabas in Acts 5 as he had sold a possession and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And from that they learned that the others would glorify them for what they had done. And we ought to do all of our righteousness, whether it's in alms or our prayers or any other part of our Christian living, not to be seen of men, but to glorify God in heaven. In Galatians 1 and verse 10, the apostle Paul said, Do I seek to please men? Or do I seek to please God? If I should please men, I should not be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be careful. The danger's there. It's ever-present. Jesus, realizing that on this occasion, warns them of the great danger that they might face, that they might live righteous lives, and do so simply to receive praises of men or to receive the glory that's here upon this earth. We need to be careful that our lives are lived in all aspects of living to glorify God Almighty. And we need to take heed that we do not strive to simply be righteous before men upon this earth. In the third place, as you continue in this same chapter, 
He talks about those who would allow the anxious cares of this life to consume them. And in verse 31, he says, Take no thought for tomorrow, for you know not what tomorrow might bring. Verse 34. In verse 31, he says, Take therefore no thought, saying, What we shall eat, or what shall we drink, or where shall we be clothed. Jesus is not saying that you ought not to take care of the needs of this life. The lesson that is under consideration in the sixth division of the book of Matthew is that one realizes the value of spiritual things. And that we realize that spiritual values far outweigh the values of the things of this earth. In writing the sixth division of First Timothy, the apostle Paul warned that if one would not take care of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And so the Lord's not saying unto us that we ought not to take care of being able to eat nor to drink. What he's saying is that spiritual values in our lives ought to be primary and that the things of this life ought to be secondary. And when we allow the spiritual things of this life to be primary in life, he says that God will take care of us as he does so clothe the lilies of the field and does so take care of the birds of the air. As a matter of fact, he says, why take ye thought for right? Why is it that we're more concerned about physical things than we are spiritual things? He's not saying that there should be absolutely no concern about physical matters. But what he is saying is that spiritual matters must come first. Realizing again the real danger that there is in life to allow physical things to so control our lives that we forget about the importance and the real value that's found in spiritual matters. Well, to set our affection upon things above, Colossians 3 and verse 1, not upon things on this earth. And when we have our hearts so filled with what we read in Proverbs 4, beginning of verse 13 through verse 16, and we allow our heart to be filled with spiritual matters, then we'll allow the things of this earth to take second place in life. We take care of them, and yet they're second place. And we place our trust in God. Can you imagine that the birds of the air wouldn't trust God to take care of them? How many sparrows have you ever seen losing sleep? over whether they'd have a meal tomorrow or not. Can you imagine the plants as the lilies of the field? Can you see them anxious? The real problem is the Lord is chiding these people for anxious care. You know, we have one on whom we can cast our anxieties, First Peter 5 and verse 8. Casting all your care, the American standard says anxiety is upon him because he cares for you. Jesus had come so that we might learn a higher plane of living, a better life. And that better life includes the fact that we can depend and that we can trust on God, trust God Almighty, that we can place all of our trust in him. And so we need to be careful that we do not allow the things of this life to become primary in life, and that we place these in the place that they are, 
secondary. We take care of life. We take care of our children, providing for their necessities, providing for our own necessities. And yet, these things become secondary in life, and spiritual values take primary instance in our lives. Then again, in the 18th division of the book of Matthew, you find where the Lord says that there's a real danger that we might allow or to cause one to stumble, and we need to be careful about that. In verse 10, he says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven the angels do always behold the face of my Father. For the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. And he had told them about their relationships one to another, warned them, Woe unto the one by whom offenses would come. We need to be careful and take care that we do not become a stumbling block in our brother's way or cause an occasion to stumble. In Luke's account of the same thing in the 17th division of the book of Luke in verse 3, he says, Take heed to yourself that if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. And so the real danger becomes that we cause someone to stumble simply for not standing for right. And what is right? Standing in the right way for what's right. Even when we stand for truth, we do that in love. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16. We allow love to be the watchword of our life. In Galatians 6 and verse 2, he said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a trespass, verse 1 rather, Ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness or gentleness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And so the Lord's warning about the danger that we have that we would cause someone to stumble. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 10 are chapters that also regulate this same thing. And we won't have the time tonight to read either of those chapters. But you'll turn on through your Bible, and you'll see other things that we as the children of God must take. We had read a few moments ago from Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the exhortation that's given to elders, because I don't have the time or won't take the time to discuss that this evening. But I think that there's a vital and important principle for all of us that's contained in that passage when he says, take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. And we need to take heed of what our relationship is to the Word of God. And he told them that they were to examine themselves in the light of the gospel, in the light of God's Word. And in doing so, that they would be able to walk as God Almighty would have them walk. But if you'll turn to the book of Ephesians and the sixth division of the book of Ephesians, he tells us that we are to take the whole armor of God. Beginning with the tenth verse, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 
Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand an evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, having the blessed trait of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, whereas you'll be able to quench the fire darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so the Apostle Paul says that we need to take the whole armor of God. There's a real danger sometimes that we'll go into battle half with half our armor on. Could you imagine the Atlanta Falcons as they seal the division title this afternoon if half of them had gone on the field and they'd left the armor behind? If William Andrews had left off the shoulder pads and left them back in the dressing room when he went through the line, what would have happened? What about if one of them Barkowski had just decided, I don't need this helmet. I can leave that behind. I can get along without it. Well, we recognize that on the football field that they have to wear their combat armor. We recognize the fact that sometimes that soldiers need to wear the proper attire, the proper armor. They do not wear the same kind of armor that they wore back at the time that this was written because they fight a different type of warfare. And yet there's armor that must be worn. I've read in the paper in recent years where police departments have gotten these bulletproof vests that they're required to wear them as they go on the job, particularly on the night shifts when they go in to check out just simply the stores. Have you ever seen a policeman go around town and just shine his light in the stores? If he's got on a bulletproof vest and someone's in that store and they begin to shoot at him, if it hits in that vest, then he's protected. What about a child of God who goes into battle and he goes in with half his armor left alone, left off? Well, we recognize that we must wear the armor if we're going to be able to conquer. And he says that our wrestling's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers against the rulers of darkness of this world in spiritual or, or spiritual wickedness in high places. And he says that we're to take all the ark, having done all the stand. Now, if we really want to stand, we must take it all. We can't take just part of it. And part of the armor that we take is defensive. It's to ward off the fire darts of the evil one. But a part of the armor that we take is offensive. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, the sword was that that they wielded in battle in an offensive way. If you only had defense, you'd only have half the armor. Only be able to do halfway good in the battle. But you've got to take the sword of the Spirit. You've got to weld the sword of the Spirit offensively. If not, you'll fall. Having done all to stand, not just part of it, the song that we sang in preparation for the lesson tonight and the way that we sing it points out the fact that we as the children of God must be offensive in the battle. That we take the life. 
Not only do we send the light, but that we take the light. In the book of Philippians, in the second division of the book of Philippians, in verse 15, he says, that you may be blameless and harmless, sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And so they were to take the light, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And these individuals were to take the light, to be offensive in the battle. Go back sometime and just study the children of Israel. Watch them as they come out of the land of bondage in the book of Exodus. See them as they wander through the wilderness in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. See them as they go into the land of Canaan. They're fighting an offensive battle. Best way I know to describe the book of Joshua is the victors of faith. As redeem and battle after battle, take to the fight, and as they take to the fight with purity of life, standing with righteousness of life, they will overcome and to conquer the land. But see what happens when you get them in the land in the book of Judges. The book of Deuteronomy, all through the book, some six times, I believe it is, over and over again, beware lest I forget God. You're going to come into the land and the time's going to come and you're going to drink out of wells that you didn't dig. You'll eat fruit off vineyards that you didn't plant. And you'll begin to think that, oh, all this is mine. I did all this on my own. I can sit down there and I can be like that rich man in Luke 12. I can take my knees. But it doesn't work that way. We've got to take to the battle. Paul said, I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. He didn't say, I begin to fight and I sit down to rest. But he said, I have fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. And so we need to take the armor of God, take all the armor of God, and then taking the armor of God to continue in the fight, waging a fight for right. In the book of Hebrews, you have this warning given in the third division in the twelfth verse. Take heed, brethren, lest there should be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest there be in you the hardness by the sleepfulness of sin. For if we've been made protectors of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And so there's the warning that we need to take heed lest there be in us an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The warning's given over and over again in the Hebrew letter. You look back at those examples back there and see how they did. And you allow the examples of their lives to guide your life. Here are examples of people who have fallen. They did not allow the gospel to be mixed with faith Hebrews 4 and verse 2. Because when it was preached to them, they didn't apply that to their lives as we read in Proverbs 4 and verse 13 through 16. They failed. The same thing can possibly happen to us if we do not take God's Word and apply that to our lives so that we'll be able to stand. Be able to stand complete. We need to take in the sixth place the examples of these so that we might be able to continue faithfully unto the end. Turn to the book of James in the fifth division of the book of James. James 
It says in verse 10, Take my brethren the prophets which have spoken the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord that it was better, very pitiful and of tender mercy. The book of James talks about the patience of the redeemed. He begins in chapter 1 talking about the patience of the redeemed. Brethren, can't all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and patience when it hath been tried will become perfect. We need to understand the patience that we need to have. The steadfastness that we need to have, that's another word for patience. The steadiness of life, the faithfulness of life. Behold, we count them happy that have endured. In the tenth division of the book of Hebrews, and he says concerning this very thing, in verse 36, you have need of patience, that after having done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Because he says, oh, for yet a little while, and they... He that shall come will come and will not tarry. The just shall live by faith. And then he goes into that beautiful chapter, chapter 11, to show the patience of the patriarchs that endure, not seeing the prom or seeing the promise afar off, not being able to hold on to it. Yet they could see the unseen. It was not something that was there that they could touch, but through faith. Based upon the testimony of the Word of God, these endure. Finally, we need to take the invitation of our Lord. If you'll look at the invitations that are given throughout the accounts given in the New Testament, you'll see that we need to take them, take advantage of them. For instance, in the book of Matthew, in the 16th division of the book of Matthew, in verse 24, Jesus said, If any man would be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. There's an invitation of our Lord to discipleship. Now, he's not talking about the cross that we bear, that we sometimes talk about. It's not something that hangs around some lady's neck. It's not something that appears on a church building. The cross meant death. That's all it means. When he said, take up the cross, Revelation 2.10, he said, you be faithful even if it's in the face of death. Even if it requires your life. Why? Because you believe that as Jesus was raised from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection that you'll be raised also. And so we need to take up the cross. That means that we follow the Lord regardless of what the circumstances might be. In the 11th division of the book of Matthew, he says that we're to take up the yoke. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden's light. There's a burden that must be borne by the children of God. We take up that yoke. We take up that burden. Now, some of us younger folks might not know what a yoke is and how that yoke works. But a yoke of God will guide, and that yoke will yoke together oxen. You'll have two of them. Of them. They're going the same direction as they're yoked together. Well, we're yoked together with the Lord. We take up that yoke. We go where He goes. We follow in His footsteps. 
we go after his example as we mentioned this morning in the lesson. And find in the book of Revelation in the 22nd division, the book of Revelation, the Lord gives the final invitation that you read in the Bible in verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come and let him that hears come and let him that is a thirst come. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. It's there. The water of life. The time was when sin had brought a curse into this world. And there could be no life. The wages of sin's death. But that same verse says the free gift of God is eternal life. We have available to us the salvation that's summed up in the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God has come. He suffered and died on the cross. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. John 1, verse 29. That Lamb has come. and We might take of the water of life freely. In John 4, you'll find our Lord discusses this same water with the woman at the well. And she says, I'll, he says, I'll give you some water that when you drink that water, you never will be thirsty again. Why? It's the water of life. One who is a child of God takes advantage of the water of life, lives to the fullest extent the Christian life, enjoys the privileges and the blessings that are ours in Christ, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Enjoys the greatest life that one could ever live, the abundant life, John 10, in verse 10. Yes, there are some things that we need to take. They're there available. But the very fact that here in Revelation 22 and verse 17, he said, the Spirit and the bride say, come, there's an open invitation. Whosoever will, that includes anyone who is willing to take it. Let him come and take of the water of life for him. There's also the possibility that it will be turned on. That one will not have the privileges, enjoy the privileges that we might enjoy as the children of God. The lessons yours are some things that we need to take. When we take heed to the instruction that's given in this book, apply that to our life, then we can have the abundant life, the water of life. What a wonderful thought to know that there's a spring from which we might drink when we'll never thirst. You know, this life affords those things that only whet our appetite. Have you ever drank some water? And the time comes when you want another drink. Why, you mothers know all about that. You'll give your kids a little bit of Coca-Cola or something, and they want some more. It just whets their appetite. Have you ever told a child that late in the day, and they were going to go to bed in a few minutes, and you'd say, well, I'll give you just a little bit, and you pour just a little in the cup, and they want some more. Usually we don't give it to them, but they want it. Why? It only whetted their appetite. One day we heard the children of God that if we endure to the end, the appetite of life that has been whetted by living the child of, as a child of God, to enjoy the privileges of ours as a child of God, will be fulfilled in its fruition in heaven. We'll be in a place where there's no death. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. All the former things will be laid aside. All the endurances that we've had to go through in this life will be over. All that will be there is joy. 
peace and contentment. Revelation 22 and verse 4, it says the curse will no longer be here. The sin that has plagued us through the flesh in this life, the temptations of life that are ours, will no longer bother us in heaven. We'll lay aside the flesh. We'll have a body that's a changed body. It's one that's incorruptible, one that's immortal. This mortal body will put on immortality. The problem that has eluded us in life, the problem that's plagued us all the days of our life, through the avenue of flesh, will be laid aside. There'll be no possibility of sin in heaven, or there'll be no temptation. The things that were in this life will be laid behind, and there'll be the fruition of a Christian's life. If you're here tonight and you want to enjoy that, why not come? As together we stand and sing. The house one morning. The mother was sitting there talking to him, and the little toddler took off in the back room. And she had had just about enough of it. She knew she was back there going through the drawers. And she said, John's gun's loaded in one of those drawers. That time, mother said no. She tore off back and said, get out of those drawers. We need to learn to tell our children no, and that's where they learn respect for people's property, right there. You don't teach them when they're 15. You can't go in your neighbor's house and take what you want because it's there. If you don't teach them when they're one and two years old that they respect other people's property and they let that alone because it's theirs, when they end up in juvenile court, don't you blame it on them. That's responsibility, Father. We've got to say no. We've got to teach our children that they have respect for other people's property. How do we do that? We restrain them. In the book of 1 Samuel, you find that in the second chapter of 1 Samuel that there's a statement made about Eli's son. It says in verse 12, And they knew not God. You turn over to the third chapter of 1 Samuel, and it says in verse 13 that they were violent. He restrained them not. Fathers, you're responsible for restraint. The way that you teach them to respect other people's property, the way that you teach them to respect authority, the way that you teach them to be responsible is to restrain them. They're not going to do it on their own. Children like restraint. Whether we realize it or not, our teenagers like restraint. It's easier for them when they're told you come home at 10 o'clock than it is when you say, well, you just go out. You know how it goes, you know. They're going out the door and you say, where are you going? Somewhere. Who with? Somebody. What time are you coming back? Sometime. What you going to do? Something. If they say that, you get them and you set them right down there on that couch and you say, you ain't leaving here. You tell me where you're going, what time you're coming in, who you're going with, and what you're going to do. That's restraint. Now, kids, they do that because they love you. The one that says, you just go on, have a good time now, come in when you want. They don't love you. They could care less. 
We're living in a society that's filled with unloved children. I see children in my neighborhood all the time who their parents don't know where they are, what they're doing, when they got there, and where they're going. And the reason is they're unloved. They don't have time for them. When we love our children, we know where they are. We know what they're doing. We know who they're with. You restrain those children. A part of that restraint is discipline. The discipline that we do is for teaching. It teaches lessons. You know, that was hard for me to learn. I didn't know that when they took that switch down and just banked tar out of me, they were teaching me a lesson. But I do now. I thank God for those lessons that I learned. For that belt that was about that wide that hung up behind the door. That thing had put a blister on you before you can think about it. But through that discipline, there were lessons learned. That's the only way we teach our children respect. In the book of Proverbs, over and over again, you see this fact pointed out. Right? For instance, in the 13th division of the book of Proverbs, he says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him be And so the one who uses discipline to uses a rod of correction is the one who loves the child. And it's out of love that we do discipline. It's a lack of love when we fail to discipline our children, when we leave them to go in their own way. In chapter 22 and verse 15, you see the same thing. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but a rod of correction will drive it far from him. Children will go to the extent that we will allow them to go. We need to learn this parent. That children want to stop. They don't want to do wrong all the time. But they're going to push you just as far as you'll let them push it. And when you draw the line, that's where they'll stop. And they'll learn to stop right where you draw the line. And where they'll stop as adults will be right where you draw the line. They're going to model from you the kind of adult that they'll be. They'll see it in their mother and their daddy. Boys, when you go choose a wife, she'll be just like a mom. When you go choose a husband, girls, he'll be just like her, his daddy. Fathers, let me say in closing this morning that there's a place that fathers occupy that can be filled by no one else. There are no substitutes. And in case I forgot to mention it, take time for your children. Time. Children need love, but they need time. Children need respect, but they need time. Children need our admiration, but they need time. Children need our discipline, but they need time. Children need fathers who love their mothers, but they need time. Children need our time. One of these days, we're going to come along, and the child that was there will be gone. No matter what we do as Christians, if we lose our families, we've lost our most important possession. The first creature that's mentioned in the Bible 
is Noah. Genesis chapter 6 through 8. Noah was a successful preacher. You know how many he saved? His family. Our first responsibility is to our families. And we need to devote time to our children and our families. And the things we've said this morning, you can see what an awesome job it is to be a daddy. I asked one of my little girls last night, what's a father? And she said, a daddy is one that takes care of me. And she said, it's real complicated. Well, I think it is. We need to honor our fathers because they've got a complicated job. May we as fathers take the lead in our homes. Not just say we lead, but assume that lead. Guide our homes in the way that they should go. Guide them back to God. That's our responsibility as we walk down the pathway of life to help our mate to go to God and to help our families to go there also. If you're here this morning and not a child of God, why not obey the gospel of Christ? Jesus died for you on the cross. He created a way that's the best way of life that one can live. It's an abundant life, John 10 and verse 10. If you're an entrant, why not this morning through faith Turn from your sins. Confess the name of Christ before this audience. Be buried with him in baptism. Put on Christ and then live as a Christian all the days of your life. If you're subject, won't you come? Ask together, we'll stand and sing.